My text this morning consists of one and a half verses. The half verse is found in John chapter 10, verse 10. When Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The other verse is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, where it says, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. As you can see, the first half of the verse uh, pertains to this life, and the verse in 1 Corinthians 2 uh, goes to the future life. I want you to think with me this morning on a subject that maybe you haven't thought about before. Uh, the title of it is Keep Your Fork. Now, I know you're wondering what this can mean, so let me tell you. When I was in evangelism, it was my delightful privilege to eat in some of America's most finest homes and placed before me would be a meal fit for a king. In evangelism, I would never go hungry. My family might, but I would never go hungry. Uh, people saw to it that I was well fed. Permit me to describe one meal that I had, uh, and I could tell you about many, but just one meal. I was to begin a revival meeting on Sunday morning. It was going through Friday night. I arrived at the pastor's home on Saturday afternoon, and he told me that he and his wife and I had been invited to have dinner with a family in the church. So we went to the house about six o'clock. We sat down in the den for a few minutes, and then we were told that the meal was ready. We walked into the dining room, and the plates were already set. There were five of them. And on each one of those plates was a inch-thick, juicy steak charcoal broil to perfection. Uh, there was a hot-baked potato. Uh, there was a tossed salad and some French bread. Just looking at it caused the gastric juices in my mouth to begin flowing. I could hardly wait for the blessing to be asked and to be able to start eating that meal. After the blessing, we began to eat, and believe it or not, I ate the whole thing. And when I finished eating all of that meal, I thought how satisfying that meal was to my physical appetite. Then the hostess got up, and she began taking up the uh, plates, the silverware, and with a smile, she said, keep your fork, and I knew the meal wasn't over. There was going to be dessert. She slipped into the kitchen and in a few minutes came out with hot apple pie and ice cream. What a meal. What a meal. Now, I had many meals like that, but that was one of the best ones that I ever had. Later on, I began to think about that meal, and I thought, you know, uh, that meal is a perfect picture of the Christian life. Living the Christian life is like eating a full-course meal and then just keep your fork because we have dessert in the end. We have heaven at the end of this life. Some people have the idea that if you become a Christian, you sacrifice all happiness. No more fun. No more laughter. It'll be worth it all when we finally get to heaven, but not now. We just have to endure it. I contend that the happiest people on the face of this earth are dedicated Christian people. Now, not the backsliders because they're not happy. 
But everyone that's dedicated to the Lord is a happy person. Now, there are four things that I want to give to you. Uh, well, really just three of them because I know I won't have time to get the fourth one. Uh, but three of them that I want to give to you that Christian people have on their way to the grave that unsaved people do not have. Three of them are like a full course meal and the other one is like the dessert. Let me give you the three things uh, that we have as a full course meal. First of all, we have the peace of God or the peace with God, I better say. And then we have the presence of God and we have the people of God and finally we have the place of God, which is heaven itself. Now, nothing can be more satisfying than that. So go back to the first one. We have the peace of God. We live in a culture that is dominated for a quest for peace. I suppose that peace is the world's most sought-after commodity. Most people spend an entire lifetime trying to find it, and sadly, most of them do not find it. What is peace? Where does it come from? And how does one get it? Well, first of all, there is a peace that comes from the system. I'm talking about the world system. Webster says peace is freedom from war and strife. Now, this kind of peace is always brought about by compromise. It has a reference to nations uh, who were at war. And then finally they sit down at the negotiating table and, and they sign a peace treaty. And the peace treaties come at a great price. Each one of them has to give in. Each one of them has to compromise. And at best, it is very short-lived. Uh, down through the centuries, literally thousands of peace treaties have been signed. And most of them only last for a few years. And they are broken. We have broken peace treaties in our own time. You and I have experienced some of them, where nations were at war one with the other, and then they signed a peace treaty, and it lasted for a little while, but it soon passed away. However, there is a peace that comes from the sinful system. Now, the sinful system brings about another kind of peace. For example, unsaved people are always searching for peace. And they usually turn to three or four things in their search. Solomon, I believe, gives it best in the book of Ecclesiastes when he said, I sought for wisdom. And he got all the wisdom that he could have, and yet it brought no peace. But there were three other main things that he searched for. And those main things are the things that we're searching for today. He said, I will seek wealth. He, brought, he thought that if only he could have enough money that he would be happy. And so he accumulated thousands and thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, but it brought no peace to his heart. In the book of Matthew, chapter 29, Jesus tells us the story of a rich young ruler who came to him and said to him, Master, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? We might turn that around to say, he said, what can I do that I might have peace? I don't have any peace in my heart. What can I do? And Jesus said to him, well, keep the commandments. And he quoted the last six. And he said, I've kept them all from my youth. But he realized he still didn't have peace. Jesus looked into his heart and he saw selfishness. 
And he said to him, now sell what you have, give it to the poor, come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the Bible said he went away sorrowfully because he had great wealth. Money can buy a whole lot of things, but it can never buy happiness. It can never buy health and it can never buy heaven. Those things are beyond what money can do. And so then some of the wealthiest people on earth are some of the most miserable people who ever lived. Solomon said, I tried wealth and it didn't help me. And then he said, I thought I'd turn to wine. I would turn to drink and maybe I can drown my troubles in alcohol. He didn't realize that troubles are able to swim. And when you get sober, you have all the troubles you had before and then the added ones that you placed upon them. Wine can never, ever bring peace in your heart. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 20, verse 1, the scripture said, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In Proverbs chapter 23, beginning at 29, he said, Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Those that tarry long at the wine. Wealth and wisdom and wine can never bring you happiness. And then Solomon decided that he would try women or men, whichever the case may be in our day. And so he, uh, he ended up with about a thousand wives, some of them he had never met. But he thought that somehow, in some way, that they would bring peace to his own heart. He soon found out that changing partners and getting a new wife would not bring peace to his heart. We live in a day when people are divorcing on every hand, we live in a day when people are, are living together without marriage. We live in a time when couples are saying, well, I made the wrong decision. If only I can find another partner, I'm going to be happy. And if you go to Hollywood and talk to most of the socialites and swingers, you will find that they have no peace in their own heart because there is no peace in that kind of thing. Now, it is true that sinful peace is never permanent. The Bible says in Isaiah 59, verse 8, the way of peace they know not. There can be no peace in the heart as long as there's revolt against God. There can be no peace in the heart as long as the guilt of sin hangs over you. Go out and witness to a lost person. Ask him, are you a Christian? And he replies, no. And then you say to him, do you believe that there's a heaven and a hell? And many of them will say, I do believe there's a hell and my hell is right here on earth. That's a testimony of what the devil cannot give. The devil can never bring you peace in your own heart. It is, it is, a, it is a wicked thing to live a Christian life and have to live with your own self day by day by day. The Bible tells us that the way of a transgressor is hard. It may be that some of you in this building have no peace. You're in turmoil. You're frustrated. Your burdens are heavy. You can hardly cope. You have no peace. Well, I got good news for you. You can turn to Jesus Christ and I promise you, he'll give you peace in your own heart. Amen. There is a peace that comes from the Savior. And that's what he said in John 10 verse 10. He said, you, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly.
And then in John chapter 24 and verse 27, he said, My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives unto you. You see, the world can give a peace, but Jesus said, My peace is different. Notice he said, It is my peace. That means it's not available from any other source. Money can't buy it. Wisdom can't attain it. Intelligence can't procure it. Effort can't secure it. It is a gift from God to anyone and everyone who is willing to receive it. You can't purchase peace. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross. When does peace come to an individual's heart? It comes whenever you repent and receive Jesus as personal Savior. Whenever that happens, the war between you and God comes to an end. In Romans 5, in verse 1, he said, Therefore, being justified by grace, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is a difference between peace with God and peace of God. The peace with God means that the rebellion and the war that you've been fighting against God has now come to an end. How does it come? Well, it comes through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and through faith in what he did on the cross of Calvary. A little over five centuries ago, ago, there was a young German professor who did everything within his power to find peace in his heart, but he could not find it. He was taught in that day that Rome was the center of the Christian world. And so he thought, if only I can go to Rome, I'll be able to find peace. He made his way to Rome. He didn't go to view the uh, ancient things that are there. He went in order to find peace in his heart. It is said that he went to St. Peter's Basilica and got down on the first step and began to pray for peace, but it did not come. He went up the second, the third, the fourth, and on. No peace came. Finally, he said, when he reached the top step, it seemed to him that there was a voice that spoke from heaven and said to him, the just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther said, I accepted Jesus Christ by faith and the peace of God flooded my soul. Amen. Now, what happened to Martin Luther can happen to you and me. I need that kind of peace. I want that kind of peace. And I'm satisfied that most of you, if not all of you, also want that kind of peace. We have peace with God. Secondly, we have the presence of God. Have you ever thought about that very much? Do you know that lost men and women walk alone? The loneliest people on the face of this earth are lost people. When sorrow comes, they're alone. When sickness comes, when death comes, they're all alone. I have never heard of a man, a wicked, sinful man lying on his deathbed say to his family members, I want you to gather around me. And when they did, he said, now I want to recommend a godless life. Have you ever heard of that? Never. But I have heard of men or women gathering their families around them and say, let me recommend that you live for God and trust Jesus Christ as your own personal savior. The apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, uh, described the life of an unsaved person. 
In verse 1, he said, the man is dead in trespasses and sin. Uh, You don't need resuscitation, you need resurrection. And the world around us is full of walking dead men. They think they're alive, but they're dead. In verse 2, he said that the unsaved is depraved. Now, I know you don't like that word depraved. Uh, We say, no, I'm not a depraved person. I live a good moral life. Any person outside of Jesus Christ is a depraved person. The Bible said you walk according to the course of this world, swept away by the world's pleasure, enslaved by Satan himself, and indulging in the things of this world that can never bring peace in your heart. In verse 3, he said you're doomed. Not only dead, not only uh, depraved, but doomed. In verse 3, he said, by nature, the children of wrath. Did you know that the sentence of death has already been passed upon the unsaved? It is only God's mercy that has stayed the day of execution, but one day that day of grace will come to an end. Unsaved people have no presence of God. But on the other hand, saved people never walk alone. From the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, He comes to live within you and you have His presence. And he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Joseph knew the presence of God when he was enslaved in Egypt. Daniel knew the presence of God when he was thrown into a lion's den. The three Hebrew children knew the presence of God when they were thrown into a fiery furnace. In fact, after they were thrown in, Nebuchadnezzar went to look. And he called one of his soldiers and said, did we not cast three persons in? He said, yes. He said, I see a fourth one. And he's like unto a son of God. Yes, God was with him in that prison. Paul and Silas could sense the presence of God in a Philippian jail. They knew what it was to have the presence of God walking along with them. What can come into your life by the presence of God? Would you like to have his presence? Well, I'll tell you that it'll do three things for you. The presence of God will sustain you in the crises of life. Have you had a crisis lately? Did you sense his presence? If you haven't had one, you will have one soon. A doubt is going to come, tension, uncertainty. You're going to find yourself standing at the fork of the road not knowing which way to go. And he said, I'll guide you. I'll go with you. I'll guard you. And I'll see to it that you are lifted up and guided in the right direction. There is no need for a Christian to have a nervous breakdown. If you've been planning on one, cancel it. You don't need it because he's there for you in the crises of life. But he's also there to calm you in the storms of life. When I was in evangelism, I, was, I closed out a meeting in Dallas, Texas. It was in the evening. And uh, we flew out of Love Field uh, going to Atlanta and then on into Charleston. And about 20 minutes out of uh, Dallas, uh, the captain came on the intercom and he said, make sure you're seat belts are fastened securely because there's a bit of a storm ahead of us. He didn't tell a half truth when he said a bit of a storm. 
It was a powerful storm, high, wide, couldn't go around it. He said, we've got to go through it. Well, everybody on the plane was talking and drinking and eating and whatever else they wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, we hit something. I thought we'd run into a mountain. And that plane began to go up this way and then roll down this way. And it turned and twisted on this in this way. I reached down and caught both sides of my seat. I pushed down with both feet trying to help the pilot all I could. That thing turned and tossed and rolled. And you say, were you scared? Scared half to death. Nobody wants to die in a plane crash. Then all of a sudden, I thought, you know, Jesus said, I'm with you, 30,000 feet. I don't care where you are. And I settled back in my seat and I relaxed and rode it down all the way into Atlanta. He's with you in the storms of life. Appeal wrote a little article, a little poem that I want to read for you. He said this, the light of his presence surrounds me. The love of God enfolds me. The power of God protects me. The presence of God watches over me wherever I am, he is. We not only have peace with God and the presence of God, but if you still have your fort, we have the place of God, which is heaven. That's the dessert that is yet to come. Now, in the Bible, you will find that John does not tell us about a lot of things that will be in heaven, but he does tell us about some things that will not be in heaven. And I'm glad he told us about those things which would not be in heaven. Let me just mention them to you. The Bible said there will be no more sorrow. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. God said, I will wipe away all of your tears. He'll take the handkerchief of his own grace and wipe away the tears from your eyes and mine. As you know, sorrow follows you like a shadow. Every heart knows about bitterness and sorrow. Even Jesus wept and Paul spoke of his own tears. You may forget how to cry, but you'll never forget how, or you may, know, uh, how, you may forget how to laugh, but never forget how to cry. Tears are always going to be there. But one day, John said those tears will be wiped away. There'll be no more sorrow. Secondly, there'll be no more sickness. No more pain. No more heart attacks. No more strokes. No more cancer. No more back pain. No more groans. It's going to take some of you a long time to get used to that because you've lived with pain most of your life. But one day, the pain will be gone and there will be no more pain in your body. Thirdly, he said, there'll be no more separation. You know, family separation is hard, but think about the separation that death brings about. Death brings about a terrible separation, but the Bible declares that one day, death will become, will come to the lake of fire, Revelation 21 said, and the devil was cast into the lake of fire, and there'll be no more death. Death will forever be gone. You'll never have to stand again by an open grave and weep. 
It's hard for us to imagine a place where the pale horseman can never come. But one day, death is going to be banished. There'll be no wreaths hanging on the mansion doors in the sky. There'll be no obituary columns in the heavenly newspaper. There'll be no funeral directors screwing, screwing down the lid of a loved one that's in a coffin. There'll be no funeral processions moving over the streets of gold. There'll be no graves on the hillside, no stonecutter chiseling an epitaph at a grave, and the redemption of the redeemed are going to sing, death is swallowed up in victory. What a dessert that is. But I want to give you one last one. No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death, and no more Satan. Now, Satan has plagued me all of my life. He's a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. But one day, the Bible said he'll be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 10, and he will torment us no more. That, my friend, is a little bit of what the Christian life has to look forward to. If you're here today unsaved, you don't have any of those things. You have no peace. You have no presence of God. You have no assurance of the place of God. But you can have these things because Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. If you're willing to admit that you're a lost sinner, willing to repent of your sins and invite Jesus to come into your heart, he said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out or turn away. In just a moment, uh, Anna Marie is going to come and Anne Marie is going to come and lead us in a hymn of invitation. And as she does, I'm going to invite you that are lost to get up out of your seat. Walk down one of these aisles. Brother Randy will be here. Say to him, I'm lost. I've never received Christ. I won't to invite him to come into my life. Or if you want to dedicate that life to God, maybe you've been out of a fellowship with God and you want to dedicate it to the Lord, then you come 